0: Please take your Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of John, the ninth chapter. And we're going to reread the passage that we looked at in detail last week and let it serve as a beginning point for the morning message that I believe you will find very relevant to your life. John chapter 9, verse 1. And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Now, let me stop here a moment and take note of the fact that the conventional wisdom of the day of Christ and his disciples about people who were still in the womb was that people in the womb could actually sin. The illustration, which was used by many of the rabbis of the day, was that of Esau and Jacob in their mother's womb. Genesis 25 talks about how they were tussling with each other, wrestling with each other. And the pundits, the rabbis, said it was Esau's attempt to kill Jacob, so he was guilty of murder while he was still in the womb. Well, that's a stretch for sure. But that gives us some insight as to why this question is asked by the disciples of Christ regarding this man who was blind from birth as to whether he sinned or his parents sinned because it was common for people to think in Israel at this time that all sickness was the result of sin. A different twist to this situation was that Due to the influence of Greek thought, and if you know anything about Greek philosophy, it can trace its roots roots to Eastern religion, primarily Hinduism, which believes in the immortality of the soul. That simply means that people pre-exist before they are born in their mother's womb through conception, and they will continue to exist beyond this life. And the result of that would be that this life is preparatory for the next life. Not the next life as we think of the afterlife. As the Bible teaches, men live once, women live once, they die, they come to judgment. But in the sense that they would migrate into deeper perfection. That was part of the background here, of this kind of thinking. And then Jesus answers in verse 3, It was neither that this man sinned, nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. Thank you, Jesus, for correcting our thinking. Great insight you give us in that, that many people who are sick, even with congenital illness like this man had, are allowed to be sick in order that the works of God might be displayed in them and that God might be glorified in them. Verse 4, Jesus says, We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day, night is coming, when no man can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. The word guru comes from the Sanskrit word, which means dispeller of darkness, Jesus is the ultimate guru. He dispels darkness. He will clear up our minds, I believe, today, where there is darkness in terms of misunderstanding, lack of understanding as it relates to the whole matter of evil and suffering. This is a tough, tough subject to take on. And there are no pat answers to it. From God's perspective, people who do not know Him through Jesus, who is the dispeller of darkness, who is the life himself and the light himself, those people really have no purpose when it comes to their suffering. There's no real answer that works. In fact, listen to what is written in a book called The Problem of Pain. It's the perspective of a non-believer as it relates to this whole issue of suffering. The author writes these words, If God were good he would want his children to be perfectly happy. And if he were almighty, he would do what he wished to do. But God's creatures are not happy. Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power or both. That is the problem of pain in its simplest form from a worldling's point of view. Fortunately for us, as we look at the person of God, represented in the person of Christ, and then look at what the Bible teaches about this whole issue of why we suffer, why there is evil in the world, why there is pain in the world, we can begin to get some clarity. We might not have all of our questions asked, that we ask answered, but we will have perspective that will enable us to live In a purposeful manner. Let me pause here just a moment and take note of the fact that the Bible teaches us that there was an intrusion of an alien who was the epitome of evil into God's good world. We know him as Satan. And we know what he did Satan tempted Adam and Eve to sin, they took the bait. And the result was that ever since Adam and Eve sinned, every human being, with the exception of Jesus Christ, was born in sin, in the sense that a person is born with a sinful nature. We come to sin by natural inclination. And so, we understand that this intrusion of the alien Satan who is evil, and his Apparent success in tempting Adam and Eve to sin, and they're falling into sin. Other sins cause trouble in this world. Other sins even cause sickness in the world. Innocent people, as we would describe them, become the objects of suffering because of what others have done. And, by the way, people become people who suffer because of things we say and we do as well. We live in a fallen world. Also, we live in a world with a fallen environment. Before Adam and Eve sinned, there were no hurricanes, there were no tornadoes, there were no tsunamis, there were no earthquakes, there were no natural disasters. This is why in the book of Romans chapter 8 verse 19, Paul talks about the impending return of Christ. And what will happen? And he says this. He says, the creation eagerly awaits the revelation, the revealing of the sons of God, the true believers. Eagerly awaits. And one word in the original language translates these two words, eagerly awaits, in our English Bibles. It was a word which was used outside the New Testament to describe a person who was craning his or her neck in order to see something of great interest. Eager to see something. And this is what is happening in the creation because of the fall. Not only did mankind fall into bad straits because of the entrance of sin, but the creation itself did. So that in some way... The world is anxious, the universe is looking forward to the revealing of the sons of God, which means there will be the time when Jesus returns and there will be this clear distinction between those who are genuinely sons of God and daughters of God and those who are not. So our environment has the effect on us that sometimes results in great suffering. Now, El Paso is one of those places in the world, we don't have a perfect climate. We're seemingly coming out of the hottest part of the summer. Do I have an amen on that? It's awesome, isn't it? Waking up this morning and feeling like I wanted to put on my long johns this morning if we're so cool. But I resisted the temptation this morning. It's a little premature. But I've lived here. For 31 years. And in those 31 years, I only recall two tornadoes, if you could call them tornadoes. One was in Anthony and one was in Tornillo. And these little, I don't even know if they were even a category one, they were maybe in a category a half. (laughs) No real injury to other people, no deaths, quite unlike other places here in the United States and all over the world where tornadoes just kill. Tons of people that are so destructive. So for the heat and the wind that blows in the spring and works on our allergies, by and large, El Paso is a real safe place to live, isn't it, as far as natural disasters go? Well, there are places like Thailand where the tsunami just rushed in and killed so many people. It was awful to think about, wasn't it? It was heart-wrenching. But do you know those same places have repopulated and people have chosen to live there? And so in the freedom that we have, sometimes we choose a place to live which raises the odds of our being killed in natural disasters. It's our choice. They ought to all move to El Paso, right? (laughs) It's not that we can't have catastrophes here, but... It's quite, not quite other place, like other places in the world, for sure. Well, Jesus is the one whose life and work give perspective on this issue of pain, evil, and suffering in the world. And we're going to look at two main ideas. And they are, I believe, stated. One specifically and one suggestively in Hebrews chapter 12. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 12, if you've lost your place there. The first lens through which we are to view suffering, personal suffering or global suffering, suffering in general, is through the lens of the work of Jesus Christ as He suffered on the cross. Let me pause here once more and reflect on something which was said by a Hindu. Remember, Hindus believe in a series of migrations back to the Godhead. And sometimes people go backwards because of their failure to do what they should do in a particular period of migration back to the Godhead. And this Hindu, when he was told about the life of Jesus and studied the life of Jesus, this is what he said about Jesus. Jesus must have been a terrible sinner in His previous birth because He is such a terrible sufferer in this one. That's the mentality. Jesus was a terrible sufferer. And in a sense, He became a terrible sinner. Now listen to what I'm saying. We know the Bible says... That God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. So Jesus became sin. It was as if He had sinned. He did not sin, but it was as if He had sinned in the program of God to redeem us and save us and give us a relationship with Him that's an eternal relationship. He poured all of His wrath out. On the Lord Jesus Christ, but Jesus never sinned. This is the dilemma of people who think in Eastern terms as far as religion is concerned. But look at verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews 12, and in so doing, we're going to consider the work of Jesus Christ as He suffered on the cross for our sin. Verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Probably the sin in question is the lack of faith. Because the previous chapter is the great statement of the people who had such terrific faith. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 14, the last verse, Whatever is not from faith is sin. The root of all sin is unbelief. So probably that is the sin which is mentioned here, which so easily entangles. And notice what the writer of Hebrews says in the last part of verse 1. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The word translated, let us run, only one word in the original language, let us run. That word is a word which means let us keep on running. There will never be a moment, as long as we draw breath in this life, as we follow Christ, that we will not be in the race. And it's a race that has been marked out for us, and it's an endurance race. A friend of mine once said, Mike, the Christian life is not a sprint, it is a marathon. We're in this for the long haul, and we continue to throw off those things which... Hinder us, and the sin which so easily entangles. And we are people who do, verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. That's an understatement. Despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The pain of Christ was excruciating. Probably you know our English word excruciating actually is derived from the word crux, which is the Latin word for cross. Jesus defined what excruciation is by dying on the cross. And we look at our suffering, if we're wise, through the lens of Christ's suffering upon the cross. George MacDonald, who was the mentor of... C.S. Lewis wrote these words about Jesus' death. He said, the Son of God suffered unto, and he calls it properly, the death. Not that men might not suffer, but that their sufferings might be like His. We who know Jesus, we are to fix our eyes on Jesus. This is, in a sense, the final solution to our trouble with suffering, not to the elimination of suffering. That's not the point. It's going to be part of our lives in one form or another, to one measure or another, until we leave this life. But the solution is, we keep our eyes on Christ, not on the circumstances, and we watch how Christ died... We know He laid down His life even before He died. He kept laying down His life for people over and over and over again. And in so doing, He gives us the illustration of what it means to die to ourselves in order that we might live to God and be used by God. And amazingly, when we do that kind of living, we find it something that can be endured. And the endurance of that is purposeful. And we see... That God uses this in our lives, even in this section of Scripture. Let's just read a little further. And we're going to find a purpose and a reason for our being people who suffer. Verse 3, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Have you? Really is what he's asking. None of us, I don't believe, have shed blood in our striving against sin. And 5 says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. It is for discipline. That you endure. I believe the New International Version translates that sentence this way Endure hardship as discipline. So, whatever hardship comes into our lives because of our association with Jesus Christ, we are children of God through Jesus Christ. We are joint heirs with Christ, is what Paul writes in the book of Romans. Whatever hardship you are going under today, and we have a room filled with people. Who have some kind of hardship? It may be a relational hardship, it may be a physical hardship, maybe a psychological hardship. You're going through some hardship. Endure it and see it as discipline. This is a good place for me to stop. Here's one of the reasons that you and I suffer correction. We need to be corrected. Now, it's interesting that the book of Hebrews talks about how Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered, and that it goes on to say in the next verse that in some way he was perfected. Is that to say that Jesus was not perfect in the life he lived here on earth? Not at all. The uniform teaching of the New Testament is that Jesus was perfect, he's God. But what it would indicate, and it does indicate over in chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, about the perfecting work is, the idea is not that He became perfect and therefore became God. The idea is that in His humanity, remember, Jesus became one of us. He was a partaker of flesh and blood, according to Hebrews 2.18, so that He could deliver us from the fear of, of death and the power of the One who held that fear over our lives, namely the devil. So Jesus had to experience everything we experience in our humanity. And He became more and more human, in a sense, via His experiences. So Jesus was not made perfect. He was not given Godhood based upon the way in which He lived. But in some way, His Full, maturing understanding of what it is to be human, as a human himself, also fully God, could not be experienced apart from learning obedience through what he suffered. He suffered greatly on the cross, that was part of it, but just in everyday life. It was the training ground for him so that he could become Fully human in the sense of his experience. He was fully human already, but he understood and grew in his understanding of who he was as a human and who we are so that he could relate better to us and be a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, all of them. Look at verse 7, the middle of it. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Now, here's a surprising principle. It's a truth. That if I am not disciplined by God, I am not His son. I'm not His child. I've never, to my recollection, spanked any other child except my two children and my grandson. Those are the only ones I've spanked. And you may not call what I did with my grandson really a spanking. I like to think I spanked him, but it probably was more of a love tap from his grandfather, you know. But I love children, and my love for them made me want to help them learn to respond to the authority God had placed over them. Because their relationship to God would be in some degree dependent upon their understanding of their need to submit to His authority and that I had been placed in their lives as God's authority figure, as had by wife. And we both exercised corporal discipline to our children because we knew they needed it. And we did it in love, most of the time anyway. And so God... Always does it in love. If we were to go to Florence, Italy today, we might see a beautiful statue which had been sculpted by the great Italian sculptor Benvenuto Cellini. It was told that that beautiful statue of marble had come to him, it was delivered to him, and it was raw marble. And after many days of creating and designing what his mind could see in that piece of raw marble, he began to work and patiently and carefully he worked. And he began to knock off those things that didn't belong to the vision he had in his mind for that statue. And when it was done, it's his masterpiece. It is a great piece. Of art. Our God is the ultimate artist. We know this is what He says about Himself that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which He prepared in advance for us to do. His workmanship. The word workmanship literally is the word poema. Do you hear an English word which is derived from the Greek word poema? We are His poems. We are His exquisite works. And the Lord is working away. He disciplines us and He knocks off those rough edges. And He does it with a certain degree of delicateness, but always with purpose. Because He wants to be sure that we are conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose so that we might become like Christ, not simply in His life, but also in His death. We look at our pain, if we're wise, through the lens of the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross. Suffering isn't the cause of Our growing in spiritual maturity, although it is the pathway to spiritual maturity, to holiness. But suffering is the opportunity that God places before us. The couple named Groeschel, Victor and Mildred, wrote a book in the middle of the 70s, in the last century, entitled The Cradle of Eminence, and they studied the lives of 412 individuals who had risen to greatness as the world would define what is great, successful people. And they were looking for a common thread in each one of these 400-plus individuals' lives to determine what might have been the thing that was true of everyone who strives for greatness and achieves greatness. And what they concluded was 393 of the 412 Clearly, had some major obstacle in their lives which was necessary to overcome. And they did indeed succeed in overcoming it. That's As to say, that's on the secular level, but spiritually it's true. God has a vision for who you are to become. And that vision will involve our serving Him. And as we serve Him, we will be confronted with trouble along the way. Remember Paul, when he concludes his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 16, he's writing from Ephesus, and he says, There are many opportunities. A great wide door for effective service has opened to us here. We're going to stay a while, and by the way, there are many opponents what we can be sure of is when we are fixing our eyes on Jesus, we are following Christ. That's what it means to be a disciple. We are following followers of Christ. and what we find out is the devil doesn't like that much and he opposes us. Perhaps you know what Paul, rather Peter says about Jesus in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. He's preaching about Jesus, and he says that God, anointed Him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and Jesus went about doing good, and also, the Scripture says, He healed all those who were oppressed by the devil. The devil oppresses people with sickness, as probably was the case in the man born blind. It's oppressive. And the devil is involved in that. And then Jesus gives a specific example in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, when He encounters a woman whom he described as a daughter of Abraham, there could have been no higher thing that Jesus would say complimenting this woman. She's a daughter of Abraham, which means she was a woman of great faith. And he says to this woman, for 18 years this woman has been oppressed by the devil. She's been under the bondage of the devil. This is a woman of faith. So... What Christ has come, He's come to set the captives free. He's come to help us be relieved of our illness, just like in the case of John 9. But the reality is some people don't get healed physically in this world, and it's not due to a lack of faith. It is a mystery to us, but we know it's the truth. We saw the life of Johnny Erickson last week as we thought about this man who was healed and how she like him, became a person and to this day still is that sort of person who has a sickness, she's a quadriplegic and it's so that the works of God would be displayed in her life, and they are. Three years after she suffered this awful diving accident, she was with her friend, she was a believer, her friend was, of course, Johnny was a believer, and Johnny was just able to pour her heart out and let her know how burdened she was and how she couldn't quite understand why the Lord had not healed her. She prayed and cried out to God to no effect. And then her friend Cindy was her name, said this to Johnny. She said, Johnny, Jesus was paralyzed too. She'd never thought of that before. That Jesus spread-eagled on that Roman cross. His wrists riveted to the crossbar with stakes, as it were. They were like railroad nails. And His feet put together one stake through His feet. Jesus could only move His body up and down. Remember, He had been beaten to a bloody pulp. And can you imagine your Back rubbing up and down the splinters on such the old rugged cross that we spoke of and singing earlier in this worship service today. He could not swat away the insects who would undoubtedly have wanted to light on the oozing sores and wounds on his body. He couldn't do it. Have you ever had a fly to land and crawl up into your ear or nose before? Is that annoying or what? What? Jesus was paralyzed. But He endured the cross for the joy said before Him, scorning the shame. And He sat down at the right hand of God where He now resides and carries on His ministry of interceding for us who know. So we need to see that people who are people who understand why Jesus suffered and how that serves as... An example for us and how He lives in us if we know Him. And how He gives us the power to do the same. People like that grow in their holiness. Let's look back at our passage of Scripture. Verse 9 says, Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But He disciplines us, get this, for our good, that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. It is, isn't it? Are you heavy-hearted because of the disciplinary action of God in your life? Certainly it's, it's hard. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. What a wonderful outcome. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification or holiness, depending on the translation, without which no one will see the Lord. Do you think it's important that we get sanctified? Do you understand that part of the way that the Lord sanctifies us is through our pain, properly responded to. Now look at what verse 15 says. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Now, why does the writer insert this sentence in this discussion of discipline? Probably you have an idea. Because there is the temptation in our lives when we are suffering to blame God and be negative toward God. It is a natural response. I have done it, and probably you have too. But to do so is to miss the point of God's allowing us to suffer. He allows us to suffer in order that we can be corrected, but here's the other thing, so that we could be connected to people. Do you know that people who understand the purpose of suffering in their lives from God's point of view. They see it through the lens of the death and awfulness of Christ on the cross. They are people who know that their God is the God of all comfort, who comforts them in their affliction in order that they too can be used by God to comfort others in their affliction. I love to watch this work. I happen to have some information that you may not have about certain people in our church. And one of the things I see often is people who have been wounded and they have not sold up and been accusatory toward God. They have grown to the point where they see the hand of God in their sickness or their trouble. And they see that God is fashioning them into the image of Christ. And they let Christ work through their lives. And they come alongside and they love on people in a way that nobody else can. Because they have been comforted by the Comforter. Tim Hansel tells the story in his book, You've Got to Keep Dancing, about a woman by the name of Mary Moore. This woman was taking a shower And she had the warm water on. It felt so good. She'd been working. She was getting clean. And all of a sudden, she made a quick move, and she slipped. And as she slipped, her arm hit the the handle that was the hot handle, and it just turned it all the way around, and it just scalded her. She was injured. She couldn't get up. There was no one in the house who could hear her cry. And she sustained second and third degree burns. She found herself in a burn unit. It was not long after she arrived there and she was in a lot of pain and was feeling very sorry about her situation. And there was a man who was simply known as Sarge there who had been there for months. And he'd been away from his family. His wife had graduated from college. He hadn't seen his children except sporadically. But when he came into her area, he brought her coffee. said, can I bring you some juice? Can I change the channel on the TV? This is before the time of remote control. He did whatever he could to make her comfortable. And here this man, she said, this is her story, Mary Moore's story. This man, she knew as Sarge, was a man who had been obviously scarred much worse than she. But he had learned the secret that God had allowed his difficulty in order that God could comfort him and he could connect with her and others. Not just people who've been burned, but people who are hurting. And that's another reason God allows these things. First of all, why? To connect us, correct us rather, for we need correcting and become more holy. Therefore, more useful to God. But also to connect us with people who... Are hurting. So the cross of Christ shows us that suffering is the pathway to be more holy, therefore more useful. Here's the second thing Christ's cross shows us that our suffering is the pathway to fruitfulness. Service in the body of Christ is always something that's connected to the suffering eventually. Jesus says in Mark 10:45, He says about Himself, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. The ultimate act of service on Christ's part was when He laid down His life for you. He died for me. Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He was talking about His own impending death on the cross. But He would speak to us too. If you read a little further in that passage in John 12, He talks about the person who wishes to save his life shall lose it. But he who loses his life for the gospel and for Christ saves it. In other words, we can be used by the Lord too, only if we die to ourselves. There was a young man in our worship service this morning as I introduced myself to him. His his name is Ephraim. He's a college student. And I was glad I met him, because it helped me remember what the name Ephraim means. You know who Ephraim was, I'm sure. Ephraim was one of the two sons of Joseph. And he gave him the name Ephraim, and this is what Ephraim means. Remember, Joseph was a prisoner for 13 years, and then he was still separated from his brothers and his father's father for at least another 7 years, at least 20 years He suffered. The Bible tells us about this in Psalm 105. He suffered. The word of the Lord caused him to suffer. God had made a promise to him. He told his brothers. They didn't like it. They sold him into slavery. And he lived a miserable life to a great extent, except for the fact God gave him success in everything he did because he had companionship with God. He was able to look beyond his trouble. Well, Ephraim means this God made me fruitful. In the land of my affliction. May I tell you this? You will never be fruitful apart from affliction. I'm sorry. You must learn to die to yourself if you are going to be used by God. And there's some pain associated with that. Nobody dies without pain. We have to die to our desire for popularity. Look, you can forget about wanting to be most popular if you follow Christ. You don't have to get people to throw rotten tomatoes at you so you'll feel good about yourself because you're being persecuted because you are follow Christ. That's not the point. All we need to do is fix our eyes on Christ, we follow Christ, and we won't be the most popular person on the block. But that's okay, because we're not doing what we're doing to be known by men, are we? We'll die to our pride because the methods of God are not man's methods. So many churches, and our church is as guilty as any other church probably. We borrow things that are not the methods of God to try to get people to do stuff. The pure gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. So, we, like Paul, would say, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. And ourselves, get this, as bondservants of you. Servants of you. We're like Jesus. Remember, to be fruitful has to do with dying to self, dying to your popularity, dying to your pride, It means serving one another like a slave. Jesus left us an example by washing the apostles' feet, which was a job reserved for non-Jewish slaves. He did that for us and He left us an example. That's the way we're to live this life. And we will be fruitful to the extent that we do this. We have to die to our prejudices if we're really going to, Reach out in the name of Christ in this place or in another land. We die to our preconceived notions, realizing that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither free nor slave, there's neither male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And need I remind you today that heaven is going to be populated by people from every tribe and every tongue and every people group? No distinction. That's what I love about the church. Of Jesus, That you can leave your degrees outside the door when you walk in here. You can leave your checkbook outside the door when you walk in here. You can leave your IQ outside the door. You can leave whatever you would boast in. And when we come in here, I love what my teacher said in seminary, that all the ground is level at the cross of Jesus Christ. It is, isn't it? Praise the Lord. For that, we leave our material comforts behind. We make sacrifices for a simpler lifestyle if we're going to follow Christ because we want to get the gospel out. I like lots of what John Piper writes and says in his book, Don't Waste Your Life. He advocates for a wartime mentality. Do, do any of you have? Parents who told you about what it was like to be a child during World War II. Or maybe a grandparent who told you, I remember my grandparent, probably not even have a grandparent like that, but told you about what life was like as a person in the U.S. during World War II. There was rationing. You couldn't go out to discount tire and get a new set of tires. You had to wait your turn. You couldn't go to Walmart and buy sugar. You had to wait your turn. There were a lot of things which were rationed. Why? The country was fighting for its life. And we are in a war. And we need to simplify our lifestyles. Jesus says, by this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Glorifying God means displaying the work of God in our lives, like this man born blind became a centerpiece for Christ using him. To glorify the Father. In the book of John 15, the chapter begins with these words. Jesus says, I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch that does not bear fruit, He takes away. But every branch which bears fruit, He prunes it that it might bear more fruit. Christ prunes you and me when we're fruit bearing. We are people who see the cross of Christ as the means of bearing fruit. Jesus had to die to bear fruit. We have to die to ourselves in order to bear fruit. But the Lord does His work of pruning us, cutting us back in order to be used by Him, to glorify Him. Well, we need to concentrate, contemplate Jesus' suffering on the cross. And this in concluding this time we have together. We need to celebrate the victory of Jesus in His resurrection. Now, admittedly, there's no reference to the resurrection in this text of Scripture. But look at verse 2. There's strong suggestion. Verse 2 of Hebrews 12, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy said before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Did Jesus go directly from the cross to the right hand of God? What happened to the body of Christ? He was buried. Did He remain dead? No, He was resurrected. And did He immediately go at the point of resurrection to be with the Father? No. He hung out for several days with His people. And He shared with them His vision of what He wanted them to do. We need to celebrate the victory that is ours in Christ. And when we see Jesus as He would have us to see Him, then we're able to see ourselves as God views us as people of ultimate worth because of the price which was paid to secure our sonship and daughtership in the family of God. Listen to what Paul writes in the book of Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. That's something to rejoice about. Because the psalmist says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Where is there real joy? It's in the presence of Jesus. Where is Jesus? Jesus is near. He's even more than that. He's in us if we know Him. And we have what we need For joy, the Holy Spirit indwells us. And among the expressions of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. He's in us. And then in Romans 5, Paul says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we exalt, listen to this, we exalt in our tribulations. Do you do anything like that? It means we praise the Lord for our trouble. Well, before you knock it, try it and watch what happens. You will be transformed and the devil will be sent packing. That's the way we resist the devil, so that he will flee from us. And he goes on to say, not only do we exult in our tribulations, but we also know that tribulations produce endurance. Remember, we've got to endure. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. We keep on running the race until we draw our last breath. And endurance results in proven character, the character of Christ, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And by the way, the word translated poured out clearly means poured out and it's never going to be empty, our hearts aren't, of the love of God, because God Himself lives in us, and He is love. What a great gospel we have. As we finish this morning, I'm going to read four verses from the book of Romans, chapter 8. Let's remember, if we're going to understand and deal with our suffering, we have to look at it through the lens of Christ suffering on the cross for our sin. And that will lead to spiritual maturity and that will lead to fruitfulness that glorifies God. And then secondly, we're going to have to look at our suffering through the lens of celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the joy associated with that. Romans eight fourteen through 18. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We're bound for glory. We who know Jesus. It's going to come sooner than later. It's going to be a great reunion we're going to have there with those who preceded us in Christ. And to see Jesus face to face, unbelievable. That is what we have to look forward to. Meanwhile, we are to be men and women who trust the Lord to use suffering in our lives to make us more like Christ. Let's pray. Father, thanks for the day, for the opportunity to worship you with the brothers and sisters in Christ. We do pray that you'll help us to take these things and sort them out and really be encouraged to focus on you, Lord. In Jesus' name I ask this. Amen. God bless you. I hope you have a great week.